Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So lock the doors, throw away all the old love letters, and get ready for the next installment of Murdered in Their Beds. In June 1912, Paola, Kansas was considered a railroad town. The arrival of the Kansas City, Fort Scott, and Gulf Railroad in 1870 changed the way of life for the residents of the quiet community located south of Kansas City. The new rail line ran north and south, connecting Hillsdale, Paola, and Fontana with Kansas City, Fort Scott, and points beyond. Soon the whole world was open to the people of Paola, but unfortunately anyone from anywhere could also slip into the little town and then disappear just as easily. The first influx of settlers to the region had arrived in 1854. They took away land that had been earlier granted to Native Americans who'd been forced out of the east and who had settled in what is now Miami County. The Native Americans had been followed by missionaries, including several Catholic priests. One of them named the settlement Paola after a town on the western coast of Italy. The town was incorporated in 1855, six years before Kansas was admitted to the Union. One of the most exciting periods in the town's history was in 1888, when oil was discovered nearby. The first oil well west of the Mississippi River was drilled in Paola, and a refinery was built to handle the oil in the early 1890s. Paola became a quiet, peaceful town, but that peacefulness was shattered on June 5, 1912, when the bodies of a young couple were found slaughtered in their home. Strangely, in contemporary newspaper accounts and in the theories about the axe murders created by detectives and investigators, the murders that occurred in Paola in 1912 were never linked to the crimes that took place in Colorado Springs, Monmouth, Ellsworth, and Villisca. It's only been in recent times that it's become generally accepted that Paola was part of a series of Billy the Axeman murders. Investigators at the time didn't link the Paola murders to the ones before and after for several reasons, one of which was undoubtedly the publicity that these murders didn't receive. Each of the previous crimes, along with Villisca, was followed by at least two weeks of stories, reports, and follow-up articles. As the crimes continued to go unsolved, the newspapers increased their demands that the authorities needed to find the killer and the rewards grew larger. But by the time the murders in Paola occurred, it had been eight months since the last crime connected to the Axeman, and many people had forgotten about the others. Then, just five days later, any attention that the murders might have gained were overshadowed by the slaughter in Villisca. In addition to the delay between possible connecting crimes, people were still reeling from a huge tragedy that had taken over the nation's headlines for the last month and a half, the sinking of Titanic in the North Atlantic. 
When the ship went down in April 1912, the world mourned the loss of the unsinkable ocean liner and the 1,500 people who had gone to their deaths in the icy water. The story dominated public interest for six weeks, and then the Powell murders occurred, followed by those in Villisca. There simply wasn't time for most people to connect the Kansas tragedy when another in Iowa followed so closely on its heels. The third reason was the people involved, Roland and Anna Hudson. Anna had a terrible reputation in the small town and whether she had really done the things that people gossiped about, this probably did more to derail the investigation than anything else. The police were looking for a scorned lover or a violent point of a love triangle, not a transient butcher. Make no mistake though, as the similarities between the murders will show, Billy the Axeman was almost definitely at work in Paola, Kansas. And when he failed to satiate his bloodlust, he struck again just a few days later in a small town in Iowa. Events in Paola on June 5th began around 9 p.m. A man walked down the street. His intentions clearly focused on the home of Roland and Anna Hudson, relative newcomers to Paola. They'd arrived in town on April 10th, 1912 from Mazalon, Ohio, perhaps hoping for a fresh start. The couple boarded with G.W. Cole and his family for a short time after coming to town. Roland Hudson knew Cole when the two of them had worked together on a railroad section at Centerville, Kansas the year before. It's possible that Cole had talked to the younger man about the virtues of living in Paola, convincing him to move west from Iowa. After a week or so, the Hudsons moved across the street to a five-room rental cottage at 710 West Way Street. It was to this house that the man walked on the evening of June 5th. The man was memorable to those who saw him in Paola. He had been in town for a couple of days, staying at a rooming house, and several people recalled him asking about the Hudsons and where they could be found. The man was a stranger, but he didn't dress like a hobo or a drifter. He was recalled wearing a blue serge suit and a straw boater hat on the night when he walked up to the Hudson's front door. He also had, according to several witnesses, a pig face. It's unclear from the newspaper reports of the time exactly what this meant, but perhaps it referred to his upturned nose. Regardless, witnesses later felt sure they would remember him if they saw him again. Of course, that didn't matter since he disappeared without a trace after leaving the Hudson's cottage that night. When the man knocked on the door, he was greeted like a friend, witnesses later stated, and perhaps he was an old friend. That's what he claimed to be when he asked about the Hudsons around town. Perhaps he was just an old acquaintance from Ohio who stopped at the Hudson home on his way to the train station, leaving after a short visit. Items that were later found in the house were left in such a way that they suggested some brief reminiscing. A photo album was left open on a table along with a box of letters. The supper dishes had not been cleared and it looked as though they had been washing up when they'd been interrupted. It seemed to be a hurried, unplanned visit. The man in the blue suit was invited inside and Anna may have quickly put together a small meal. They all sat down together to look at photographs from Ohio. The stranger may have asked about old friends and so the Hudsons pulled out a box of letters in order to find their current address. The neighbors never saw the man leave, but they could have been occupied with something else and not paying attention since a random visit from a stranger to the home of a couple the neighbors didn't know well really wasn't all that interesting. The stranger boarded his train and left the area. With the way that the news traveled and since the Pala murders received little press compared to other killings in this string of murders, he may not have known that the Hudsons had been killed for a year or perhaps even longer. It's possible he had no idea that he was the last person other than their killer, to see the couple alive. 
The blue-suited stranger was a suspect in the murders, at least for a time, although he seems an unlikely one. He did nothing to hide his presence in town. He walked up to the house in full view of the neighbors and knocked on the door. He was greeted by a young couple who appeared happy to see him. It's more likely that he called on the Hudsons at what turned out to be an inopportune time. And if he had not been leaving town and had chosen to stay the night at their cottage, he might have been even more unlucky. As it was, even though the neighbors never saw the man leave, the Hudson house was dark by 10 p.m. The blue-suited stranger's short visit was over, but another visitor came calling before the night had ended. In the early morning hours of June 6th, the sound of shattering glass echoed through the home of Mrs. Joseph Longmire, a widow who lived near the Hudson Cottage. She sat up straight in bed, startled by the noise. She was unsure if something had fallen, a window had been broken, or her eight-year-old daughter, Sadie, had knocked something over. Without putting on a robe, she sprang from bed and stumbled out into the dimly lit hallway toward the front parlor. Suddenly, a flicker of movement caught her eye and she turned toward the kitchen. There was a loud banging noise and she saw the back door fly open. The figure of a man, indistinguishable in the darkened room, fled out the door. She heard his footsteps as they crossed the wooden porch and then he was gone. Mrs. Longmire was still groggy and stunned from being awakened from her sleep, but a new terror filled her heart, jolting her awake. What was the man doing in her house, and where was Sadie? Running, panicked, and breathing heavily, she hurried toward her daughter's bedroom. The door to the room was standing open, and Mrs. Longmire rushed inside to see that Sadie's bed was empty. Before she could call out, she heard crying coming from the corner of the room. Sadie was crouched there, curled up in terror. There was a man, the little girl said. She had seen him in the hallway and got up to look. The next time she saw him, he had been leaning over her mother's bed. Perhaps realizing they had been seen, the man darted out of the bedroom. A few moments later, there was the sound of breaking glass in the dining room, which had awakened Mrs. Longmire. She had entered the front part of the house just in time to see the man as he ran out the door. When Mrs. Longmire investigated the dining room, she found broken glass, as well as a woman's kimono-style dressing gown. It looked as if it had been draped over a chair, but had fallen off onto the floor. It would later be discovered that the gown belonged to Anna Hudson. It had been taken from the scene of her murder. And the broken glass? It was the chimney that had been removed from an oil lamp. The lamp was sitting nearby, its wick turned down low so that it gave off very little light but the killer had apparently dropped the glass chimney and it had shattered on the floor. On the afternoon of June 6th, two excited and worried women walked around the little yellow house on West Way Street that had been rented by Roland and Anna Hudson. The house had been strangely silent all day. The two women, Mrs. Sherman Stump and Mrs. S.J. Music, were both neighbors of the Hudson's and after hearing of the late night intruder at the Longmire house, had become unsettled by the eerie quiet of the cottage. They walked around the house trying to peer through the drawn curtains of the bedroom until finally, courage and curiosity rising above their sense of dread, they began calling to the Hudson's again 
and again. Their voices drew the attention of Mrs. William Pryor, who lived next door to the Hudsons on the east side, and she hurried over to the house. Bolder than the others, she walked up onto the porch and pushed open the front door. She went inside, but only stayed there for a few moments. Mrs. Pryor quickly burst back through the door, her face as pale as milk. She took a few steps toward her own home before she fainted in the Hudson's yard. Herman Hentz, a deputy marshal for the west side of town, happened to be passing by the house in a buggy when he saw the commotion taking place in the yard of the little yellow cottage. He was hailed by two women in front of the house who seemed frantic and upset. A third woman was lying in the grass. Hentz stopped his buggy and agreed to take a look inside. He entered slowly, aware of the pale faces and the clenched hands of the women outside. He looked about in the darkened house, taking a moment to get his bearings. The door to the bedroom yawned open and he stepped into the shadowy room. Moments later, he hurried back out to the front door. His arms were raised above his head and his face was ashen. My God, they have been murdered. They have been killed in their bed, he cried and bolted down the street to get help. Finally, one of the women outside went to the front door and peered into the gloom. She could see into the bedroom and saw the two bloody forms on the bed. Blood spattered the walls and soaked the blanket. It was a horrible, gruesome sight. The women began to scream. When the police arrived at the scene, they seemed to bring half the town of Palo with them, all hoping to catch a glimpse of the killer's work. Not surprisingly, when those curiosity seekers finally went home, they went to bed that night with all of the lights still burning. Things like that were not supposed to happen in little country towns, and once again, the authorities were overwhelmed by a crime they were not equipped to deal with. The Hudsons had been brutally murdered. The murder weapon was never definitively named. Some said it was a coal pick, likely stolen from the Frisco rail yards, which was only two blocks away. Others said it was a rock hammer or the blunt side of an ax. Regardless, Roland and Anna's skulls had been crushed and their faces were barely recognizable. There was no evidence of a struggle as they'd apparently been killed in their sleep. They lay upon the same pillow in the center of their small iron bed, their arms loosely clasped around one another. The killer had left no traces behind. He'd entered the house through an east window, removing the screen and leaving it propped up against the side of the house. The window led into an unused bedroom through which he passed, moving through a sparsely furnished dining room, through the front room, and into the bedroom where the young couple slept. Nothing had been taken from the house. Anna still wore all of her jewelry except for the dressing gown that had been left behind at the Longmire house at some point after the Hudsons had been killed. He had carried out his macabre work with the light of an oil lamp from which the glass chimney had been removed. The lamp was discovered near the foot of the bed. The bodies of the Hudsons had been covered with a blanket. Roland was barely recognizable. The left side of his skull had been torn away and a dozen other blows had rendered his head into a bloody, pulpy mass. The coroner believed that the first blow that struck Anna caused instant death. She was struck over the left temple, leaving a gash three inches long. There was also a gash across her forehead and another on the left side of her face that scrawled downward, gouging out her eye. After the killer covered the bodies, he continued to strike them, hammering so hard that the blanket had been ripped in several places. The interior of the house led the police to the conclusion that household routine had been interrupted the night before, as if the appearance of an unexpected visitor had been the excuse for leaving everything untouched until the next morning. This seemed to fit with the arrival of the blue-suited stranger who was reported by the neighbors. 
Whatever Anna's shortcomings as a wife might have been, the local newspaper reported that she was a neat, careful housekeeper. It was apparent that the Hudsons had visited with someone known to them both on Wednesday night, judging by the box of photographs, the postcard album, and the letters that had been left out. The police surmised that the visitor might have been the killer, but this seemed unlikely. Even so, the man was never found. The authorities searched the five rooms of the house. In the dining room, the remains of the evening meal were still on the table. Three places had been set. On the cold stove was a coffee pot. An apron was hung over the back of a chair. In the room that had been used for laundry and storage, a large wash tub was still filled with water and wet clothing. A pan of strawberries was resting on a pantry shelf, and on the parlor table was a pile of sewing, the pieces unfinished and looking like they had been suddenly set down. Who had killed the Hudsons and why? The police immediately began looking into the backgrounds of the couple, hoping to find some enemy that might have wanted to do them harm. And unfortunately, as with the mistaken pursuit of Charles Marchek after the Ellsworth murders, this is where the investigation went off the rails. While the police and detectives were busy prying into Anna's sordid past, the murderer slipped away and went on to kill again. Most of the investigation centered around the Hudson's unhappy marital life. They had been married for two years, but there were many problems and they had separated at least three times. Rumors that Anna had been involved in an affair with another man deepened the mystery and added another suspect to the list. The Hudsons had moved to Paola in April 1912. They had been married for the year before in North Industry, Ohio. And by all accounts, their marriage was a turbulent one. Anna was a vivacious, flirty woman, and she gained a reputation for being loose, as they called it at the time. Unfortunately, Anna may have lived up to that image, since there seems to be quite a bit of circumstantial evidence to say she actually had an affair. Roland, 21, was a year younger than his wife and was the son of Jonathan and Emma Hudson of North Industry. His father was a justice of the peace in Stark County, Ohio, and was reportedly an important man in the state Republican Party. Roland worked for a time in an automobile factory in Ohio before coming west to labor in the Frisco coal chutes. This new employment was gained during one of his separations from his wife. The source of most of the young couple's marital problems seemed to be a man named Roy Hooky Adams, a friend of Anna's from Akron, Ohio. In the short time they were married, Roland left Anna three times and they were often seen arguing in public. When they first moved to Palo, they lived with the Cole family, only a few blocks away from the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad line and the Frisco coal chutes. Roland was a hard worker and rarely missed a day of work. He was always trying to better his position, but he had a volatile temper and sometimes left town with no warning. One day he walked down to the Frisco chutes to get some coal and vanished for a week. He had ridden the rail line to the town of Beagle to take a coal job there and hadn't told anyone. It's likely that Roland's temper and Anna's flirtations made for some interesting conversation among their neighbors and created a situation that confused the search for their killer. Friends and neighbors were quick to tell the police about the things they had heard and seen take place between the couple. George W. Cole had met Roland in July 1911 when he'd first come to Kansas. He told Cole that he and his wife had recently separated and he had come west to forget about her. He mentioned another man and told him that his wife had not been true to him. Cole later told the police, he cried while telling the story and I did not press him for details. He seemed to be deeply in love with the woman. A short time before the murders, Roland left his wife again. A few days later, he was back in town and ran into Cole at the Missouri-Kansas-Texas coal chutes. The two men talked and Roland again expressed his unhappiness with his marriage. 
Cole told him he should return home to his wife, but Hudson didn't appreciate the suggestion and hotly replied, you wouldn't want to live with a woman who proved herself to be false on three separate occasions, would you? He again referred to a man in Ohio, but he didn't give a name. He drew a letter from his pocket and said that it contained facts related to Anna's former meetings with the man. It was addressed to Anna Hudson, General Delivery, Paola, Kansas. Roland had taken the letter from her, which was the reason why he'd left home again. More details were later learned about the letter. On the morning it arrived, Anna met James A. Jones, a substitute mail carrier, two blocks east of her home. Jones noticed that she seemed excited when she asked if he had a letter for her. He recollected handing her the letter and remembered that she seemed even more animated as she tore open the envelope and continued walking toward downtown. Somehow, Roland had gotten hold of the letter, which led to another violent argument between them. Roland did not report to work the day after the letter arrived. Neighbors recalled that he spent most of the day on the front porch. That evening, the couple was seen at the local cemetery where they were heard arguing. Roland's voice rose to an angry pitch, they said, while his wife's tone was much calmer. When they returned home, Roland, still angry, scribbled a note to her on a paper bag and stormed out of the house. The poorly spelled note read, Anna, I'm going to KC. Leave my clothes and those two pictures with Charlie. I will be back next fall and get them. You will not be bothered with me anymore. Goodbye, Roland. Roland told his wife that he was walking down to the chutes to get some coal, but he just kept going. Well, he didn't stay away for long. On Sunday night, he was back in town and saw G.W. Cole at the chutes. While the two men were talking, Anna approached them. She'd been weeping. Cole remembered that she asked Roland if he would come back home and live with her. Roland again accused her of infidelity, which brought about a fresh bout of tears from his wife. At that point, Cole excused himself and left the couple to talk privately. He later saw them going into their home together, and while he didn't speak with the Hudsons again, he saw them sitting on the porch together the next evening with their arms around each other. Once again, their quarrel appeared to have been resolved. The Hudson's relationship was so confusing that even their families didn't know what was going on. When Roland's father, J.S. Hudson, arrived in Paola to take charge of the bodies and return them to Ohio for burial, he was surprised to learn that Anna had been with this son in Kansas. He told the newspapers, I did not hear from Roland and supposed that his wife was still at her home in Ohio. Hudson spoke to the reporters about the times that Roland and Anna had been separated, connecting each circumstance with Roy Adams, Anna's former lover from Akron. Two weeks before, Mr. Hudson had spoken to Anna's father, Jacob, who informed him that Roy Adams had left Akron. It was believed that the man had come west, which encouraged the police to send out a bulletin asking for information as to his whereabouts. It was later discovered that Adams did indeed leave Akron, but he only went as far as Canton, Ohio to take a job in a rubber plant. He was nowhere near Paola when the murders occurred and apparently had not had any contact with Anna in quite some time. With the blue-suited stranger having vanished and Roy Adams being ruled out, the police were desperate to find other suspects in the case. Naturally, they began delving into Anna's unseemly private life, looking for current and former lovers who might have committed the heinous crime. On June 10th, it seemed that the missing link had been found. A rambling three-and-a-half-page letter was discovered on a stairway between Charles Mundell's restaurant and the W.T. Potts grocery store. The stairs led up to the office of the local Justice of the Peace. The letter, dated May 27th, was addressed to Anna Hudson and had been mailed from Kansas City. Pinned to the envelope was a note that said the enclosed letter should be turned over to the authorities. 
The letter was found by William Wilgus and Jack Lyon, who turned it over to Judge Ezra Kent, who read portions of it before giving it to Sheriff Marion Chandler. Kent noted that the letter was incoherent, adding, quote, it was evidently written in a burst of jealous passion. The letter was never published or ever seen in public again. It was apparently given to J.L. Gant, a detective from Kansas City who had been hired to work on the case. A small section of the letter was recreated by the newspapers from the memory of one of the men who saw it. That portion read, My dear sweetheart, I am becoming desperate. You must arrange a meeting. True love cannot be trifled with in this fashion. You know my love for you and I cannot stand this thing much longer. People have been killed for less and more may follow. Don't get the idea this is a threat or that I mean it that way because it is the real thing. Be true to me, I love you. No one knows why the letter, if it really was important, was left unattended on a flight of stairs outside. There is also no clue to say if it was even authentic. It's possible that it had been stolen from the crime scene by some curiosity seeker or perhaps someone just made up the whole thing for fun. We'll never know. The police never put as much stock in the letter as a motive for the murders as the newspapers did. After the paragraph was printed, the papers speculated wildly about the affinity letter, as they called it, and this invited more speculation and questionable reports from the public, further muddying the investigation. A few days before the murders, John Powell and Doc Reed said they'd been out driving with their wives when they passed a woman they claimed was Anna Hudson two miles southwest of Paola. It was a Sunday morning, the same day that Roland returned to patch things up with her, around 9.30 a.m., and the woman seemed very agitated. When they stopped to see if she needed help, she refused and only asked for the shortest route back into town. She told them she did not want to take the main road, so they told her to cross a field and follow the Missouri Pacific Railroad tracks. Powell and Reed could not say for certain that the woman was Anna, but they did recall that whoever she was, she was out there alone. Of course, the newspaper suggested it had been a, quote, secret meeting between Anna and her lover. And it was not the only such meeting that the papers claimed took place. The publicity generated more sightings, like the one reported by John Diggerford of East Valley. He was in Pala on the morning of Memorial Day and was sure he had seen Anna on the Hannah Bridge, about a mile and a half southeast of town. There was a man with her whom he described as being about six feet tall and wearing overalls that were turned up at the bottom. Dagerford told the newspaper they were quarreling and seemed greatly excited about something. After I passed them, I turned around and saw the man shake a fist in the woman's face. I didn't think much about the occurrence until I saw Mrs. Hudson's picture in your paper last week. I'm positive the woman on the bridge was Mrs. Hudson. Meanwhile, the police were still following whatever leads they could find. On the Monday morning after the murders, a coal pick was discovered beneath the Frisco Railroad lunchroom by Charles S. Gibson. The building was within 200 yards of the Hudson House. The handle of the pick was missing, and rumors spread that it was covered with blood and hair, and that the murder weapon had been found. It hadn't. According to a railroad worker named Sid Rawson, he tossed the broken tool under there himself. He'd found it more than a year before and used it frequently to dig for worms when he wanted to go fishing. After this discovery, a group of men went to work on a vacant lot west of the crime scene, searching the weeds and underbrush for clues. Three men cut the long weeds and grass under the direction of the sheriff, mowing down more than three acres behind the Hudson Stump and Longmire houses. No clues were discovered and the murder weapon was not found. Soon, the case went cold. The nation was traumatized by the mass murder in Villisca, only a few hours away by train from Paola, and the deaths of Roland and Anna Hudson were largely forgotten. 
Interestingly, a comment appeared in the Western Spirit, the Miami County newspaper, which was attributed to Sheriff Chandler. He was quoted as saying that he was satisfied that the Axeman, who had slain whole families in different parts of the country over the past year, was also guilty of the Hudson murders. Was he right? Had Billy the Axeman murdered the Hudsons? Well, I believe that he did, despite a few differences in the crime. The most glaring difference was the disappearance of the murder weapon. In every other case, Billy used a weapon of convenience, something that he found on the property, and he left it behind at the scene. In this case, he undoubtedly took it with him to the Longmire house, where he attempted to carry out more murders, just as he had done in Colorado Springs and attempted to do in Ellsworth. When he broke the lamp chimney, he heard Mrs. Longmire stirring, and realizing that someone in the house was awake, he fled the scene. This was the same thing he did in Ellsworth when he realized that Marshall Merritt was awake. In Palo, the victims were slain in their beds and then covered with a blanket. A coal oil lamp, its glass chimney removed, was used to light the room. The curtains had been pulled closed. The killer had entered the house by removing a screen and climbing in through a window. However, there was no evidence that he tried to wash up, although there was a laundry tub still filled with water in a back room. What happened to the murder weapon is unknown, but it's possible that it was simply tossed away in the railroad yards and never found. Or if it was, no one realized it had been used in a murder. Billy the Axeman, if it truly was Billy, and I think it was, vanished from Pala in the early morning hours of June 6th. He likely rode away on one of the dozens of trains that steamed through town each night. The railroads carried him northeast past Kansas City and on into Iowa, where just four nights later, he committed the most famous murders of his bloody spree. On the night of June 9th, Billy the Axeman arrived in Villisca. If you're brave enough to return for our next episode, we'll be returning to Villisca, Iowa and following the trail of a crooked detective as he attempted to frame one of the town's leading citizens for murder. Lock the doors, hide all the oil lamps, and make sure no one's lurking outside your window tonight. You don't want your house to be the next one visited by the Axeman. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words how, how... He was talking about writing um, Dreamcatcher. Now oh, he's all God. fucked up uh, from an accident and yeah. stuff, and doesn't I remember that, it. That, even that book is bad. Yeah, he, well, he hates fucking horrible. Hates the book, and then the movie is crap. Oh, it's terrible. Um, cool. Everybody ready? Sure. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. That is right. That's your name. I got it right. It is. It is. I'm What's glad going? you remembered it. Yeah. So. It's, well, it's been a long time. Well, it has. It actually has because we don't, I mean, here's your inside baseball. Yes. We actually record these several weeks before they actually air. And we usually record a couple at a time, so it, it doesn't. We have some space in between. Yeah, we got some breathing and room. In we case have to remember to, and I keep having to remember to be closer to the mic. Last time we were in a practically a closet recording episodes, and, and it so sounded great. It did, but it was very easy to stay close to the mic. Yeah, I didn't really have <laughs> yeah, a choice. A little harder one. here. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's been going on? We haven't caught up in a minute. Yeah. Well, just um, you know the usual stuff. You know, by the time we recorded this, my new book came out last week. Um, it's done pretty well. Nice. So, like I yeah. said, I love the cover. Yeah. It, it was fun. Fun book to do. Where can people find that? Uh, AmericanHauntings.net. Awesome. Um, get it on there. Um, get autographed copies that way. Otherwise, you can get them from Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all those places, too. So Nice. All right. Well, if gonna... you're a trader and you don't feel like get them from us. So. <laughs> I'm going to go in. Wait, is it in actual Barnes & Nobles or just online? No, probably not. Just probably yeah. online. I don't think there's enough room between all the toys and action figures. Well, they got to do something Noble. to survive. Yeah, well, how about just a good selection of books? That'd be a plus. Well, that's, so, that's fair. So you know. if... Barnes and Noble CEOs are listening. Oh yeah, because I'm sure they are. Yeah, if I was gonna say if it's in the store, I'm gonna go and take all your copies and put them like in the like religion or spirituality oh, yeah, or like self help section yeah. or something. Self help. I don't know. Uh, anyway, okay, we got some stuff coming up. What's going on? Well, the conference is still coming up. Um, oh, that, so that, that is come uh, that thing. Yeah, June 21st and 22nd, Alton, Illinois. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like. What that, are you doing? I know. I feel like that I have, uh, I'm ready to give up on you if you still yeah. haven't gotten them. So, uh, but we are, uh, we're, we're actually at this point, we have about 65 seats left at the time we're recording this, but the time it airs, I don't know what we'll have, but yeah. that's what we've got left for this year. We are getting close to being full. 
Uh, we are pretty much out of vendor tables. We've got a bunch of the after hour events that are sold out, uh, still some left. So we're, we're still going to have some spaces, but, um, we're, we're getting pretty full Yeah, and, and then coming up in a, Oh, go ahead. I'm I would sorry. say I, I've been, I've been interviewing people yeah, uh, that are yeah. going to be at the conference and yeah. pushing those out uh, on Patreon and then later on in the week as bonus episodes. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of showcasing who's going to be there, who's going to be yeah. speaking, who's going to be doing after hours events. So if you kind of want to get a little taste of the types of things you might see there, you can check out those bonus episodes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and then coming up in about a week or so is uh, the Evening with the Dead that we have set up. It's the last spring event that we have right before uh, Memorial Day. And that is going to be one of our dinner evenings. Um, and it's, you know, uh, death customs, funeral customs, postmortem photographs, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's coming up on May 24th. And you hang out with the Grateful Dead the whole time, right? Is that, is that <laughs> no. what it is? <laughs> no. Say my dad would be there. <laughs> but then after that, we've got a couple of summer events, one with the Black Dahlia in July and one with the Axeman in August. I still don't know if this season will be finished by then. Probably not, but yeah. you never know. I don't know. So, I don't even ask you anymore. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I haven't really stopped and counted ahead to see what we have left. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still a ways to go. Yeah. Yeah. With this whole story. Yeah. I can tell by the outlines, you know, kind of where we are in your book. But right. I also I, I have no clue. Yeah. Well, you and, and I keep up. changing things around, too. And, you know, mixing things in like with, you know, today's episode actually in the book takes place before any of the Velisca stuff does. But we're yeah. already long past that. But this is our last, this is our last time traveling episode. This is the last one that goes back in time to pre-Veliska. Right. But we're still going to do stuff post-Veliska. Yes, for, for we the will next be going one. on. Yes. From now on, we will be after Veliska and kind of more chronologically after this. Got it. Okay, cool. So that makes sense. So something that uh, you don't know yet that I realized today that uh, as people are listening to this episode we will have officially crossed 250,000 downloads. Oh, wow. Which is cool. awesome. And that's um, I don't know, that's way better than I could have imagined or would have thought we would ever do. Yeah, well, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, uh, who, who knew people would want to listen to us? So, I mean, that only happens because people care and people listen and they share. And so thank you very yeah, much. We appreciate that. It that. means a lot. And if you have a friend that somehow doesn't know about the podcast yet, you know, just make sure to you know, tell them. We had uh, that uh, last weekend... Uh, before we recorded this, obviously, um, we had a ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs. And uh, I don't think there were two people out of the whole group that listened to the podcast. What? But hopefully more of them are listening now. Yeah. Several of them ask uh, about it. So, but didn't know anything about it. And I thought, how do you, right. how do you, follow you, you? do this? Yeah. yeah. How'd you find out about this event? If you haven't seen anything about the podcast, how'd you, I, I ask, Oh, we saw it on your Facebook page. How do you not see the podcast? Right. On the Facebook page, but that's okay. So, so I need to, I need to be at all these events. It's the hype man, apparently. <laughs> I guess. Just tossing out <laughs> stickers and podcast <laughs> swag and, and everything. Okay. So before we get started, um, I have a couple of listeners that I want to call out. The first one is Diana. She sent us a book called shadow on the hill oh shit she wrote it that's her God. that wrote the book oh, my. yeah well see i and diana i i have that book already so you'll be glad to know that i had already purchased your book uh before you sent it to us i didn't even realize i did not even look at that until just right now well the sticky note and realized that it, it was diana who wrote the book 
No, that's amazing. Wow. Okay. Now I feel really dumb. <laughs> well, that's the thing is I got here and Troy's like, hey, yeah, she sent us this book. I already have it. But uh, yeah, you can check this one out. So that's awesome that you already had a book yeah, that she yeah, wrote. Yeah, I did. I and did. yeah, she and I I've talk all the time. Couple, I've had it a year or two, I think. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good book. I would say, I mean, when another author has your book already, I would think that's like the highest compliment. Yeah, but I feel bad that I didn't even look to see who wrote it when I brought it because I... I knew that she had talked to you about it, but right. I didn't pay any attention. So I, I feel dumb now. Well, it's, anyway, but I like the book. So that's, that's the good news. And now, I gave that copy to Cody. Yeah. Now we know. I will check it out. Thank you so much for sending that to us. It really means a lot. We also have a listener review from well, now we should say more yep. about it, though. And I'm going to have some, it's called Shadow on the Hill Do it. and it's Diana. And this is where this is why we were just going to say Diana until I realized you wrote the book. Diana Stercinic. Dean, I hope I got your your first yeah, let us part know. of your hyphenated right. Stairsnick, maybe? Diana Stairsnick Dean. Anyway, it's called Shadow on the Hill. And it is about an axe murder that happened in Kansas in 1925. And it is a it's a good book. I mean, I really like the book. Um, and she wrote it or she sent it to us with a note that said that it reminded her, you know, with law enforcement and that kind of thing. And yeah, mm -hmm. she's totally right about that. So anyway, um, so check out that book. If you get a chance, go look it up. Just put it, plug in Shadow on the Hill. You'll find it. Yeah. And I will say in all of the correspondence I've had with her and we've been talking about Velisca and different things, never once did she say, she hasn't hey, plugged, I'm, know, I'm an right? author with a book. You I know, know she and, never plugged herself. So yeah. We didn't. I didn't even realize it. Yeah. So, so that's a classy move. It but, is. you know, it is. But it's a good way to plug yourself, but, though. Lost on me. Yeah. Apparently, I'm sorry. Yeah. So. so no worries. So check that out. Shadow on the Hill. The next thing I want to call out is we have a listener review from iTunes, and the review says, I've only been listening for the last month and I'm obsessed. Enough so that I became a Patreon supporter and I'm binging the episodes as fast as I can. Can't recommend enough. That's from Sionak101. I don't I'm sorry, I can't pronounce your iTunes name, but thank you very much for the review. Really appreciate it. Um, the reviews in the ratings, they really help people find our podcast. So please go on to iTunes, um, give us five stars, and, uh, you know, give us a good comment. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So are you ready to dive in? Sure. Okay. So June 1912, we are in Paola, Paola, Kansas. Kansas. Awesome. Yep. I appreciate you putting the pronunciation in there for me. So a little bit of the backstory. Uh, the arrival of the railroad opened up a whole new world to this town pretty much. But it also presented a problem. So people could slip in and out. Sure. And this, a lot of railroads. Come right. And this town. seems like this this time and this new, um, you know, the evolution of the, this railroad stuff and everything kind of seems like a prime time for killers and people that wanted to do terrible things. Sure. Because it would be harder to track people. They could get in. They could get out. The first influx of settlers to the region arrived in 1854. Uh, they took away land that had earlier been granted to Native Americans, had been forced out of the east, and had to settle in what is now Miami County. I just wanted to remind everyone, this is why I make so many Christopher Columbus jokes and, and things, because it was just a terrible time back then. Back then. <laughs> um, but Paolo became a quiet, peaceful town, but that peacefulness was eventually shattered on June 5th, 1912, when the bodies of a young couple were found slaughtered in their home. You said that back, back then, at that time at least, there, there's a lot of reasons why these crimes kind of flew under the radar, but you said they weren't linked to Billy the Axeman, but eventually... They were, but was that you doing research or years later? Or how no, did I think that I think it. 
I think there was some suggestion of it um, late in the investigation that somebody started started to say, you know, hey, I think maybe these could be connected to something else. Um, it, I wasn't the first person to make the connection. And there are some people who still don't think they're connected. Yeah. Um, I think they are based on the, the things that were left behind at the scene. Uh, but the, the main thing I think that that made this so far under the radar, unlike so many of the others, is because of the lack of publicity. Mm-hmm. And it, this was a local murder. It didn't get a lot of headlines on a national level the way some of the other stuff did. Um, and mostly that was because it was overshadowed by, you know, we still had uh, the newspapers were still buried in the Titanic yeah. at the time. And then, you know, four days after these murders happened, then Velisca happened. Right. And, you know, you've got a young couple who are murdered in their house and a break in that happens at the house next door. But at Velisca, you had eight people, mostly children, um, you know, slaughtered in, in the house in Velisca. And I think that made a huge difference. And it, this one just kind of got lost in the shuffle right. is the best way to describe it. And it was also an eight month gap from the previous right, murder. Right. right. It had been a while since another murder had taken place. And so, you know, time had passed and this just sort of, and it wasn't exactly the same, you know, yeah. um, there was enough similarity that I think it's the same person, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like 50 you know, identical things as mm-hmm. it was in so many of the other murders. Right, right. Yeah. And so to have this murder happen in like the sinking of the Titanic, I equate it to like being born on Christmas. Like people mm-hmm. just kind of like, eh, you know, you just get yeah. lost. Or lost had any shuffle. other event happen on September 12th of 2001. So I put that in yeah. here, but I wasn't going to make that no, joke. But, but I'm glad but you did. It's, it's, it, it's not. I mean, that that's the the comparison is, is that the, the Titanic was the 9-11 of, yeah. you know, because that's how much attention it got. And in a time when we didn't have the same kind of communications and, you know, 24 hour news cycles and that kind of thing, like we had when 9-11 happened, um, you still had people totally wrapped up in these events that occurred. And I think that 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 made a big, big difference in this particular case. For sure. Yeah. So so this case, it was Roland and Anna Hudson. And uh, Anna in particular had kind of a bad reputation around town and there were rumors of a love triangle. And that's why. It's one of the reasons why people thought that it was that and not a transient butcher. So the events in question were June 5th around 9 p.m. And uh, Roland and Anna Hudson, they're relative newcomers to the town, and they had a guest arrive that night. Didn't look like a drifter. People had seen him. He'd been in town. Uh, he, he was wearing a, uh, what is a blue serge suit? Uh, just, it's color? just the material. Oh, no, material. the blues, it's the surges of the material. Got it. It's, it's soft. And a straw suit. boater hat? Right. You know, those ones like you see from the, um, kind of a flat top on them, like a, and then they've got a, it's got a rim. It's made out of straw and have a black band around it normally. Got it. Um, you see them a lot in like 1920s pictures mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. That's a boater. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, he was also described as having a pig face. Yeah. Which, yeah. Again, yeah, we don't really know what that means, thing. but yeah. probably his nose. But you know, the thing about this, this whole thing is, is, you know, the thing with the stranger and I left it in there because that was part of the story, but you know, that was a big red herring in this case, mm-hmm. you know, everybody if immediately assumed he must've killed them, yeah. but, um, which makes sense. It does. But if he had tried to, I mean, if he'd snuck into the house, it would have been one thing, but everybody saw him come and go. 
and uh, they never did figure out who he was. Yeah, so they never um, it's, found him. It's assumed that it is was a friend from Ohio based on what they found in the house afterward. A little deduction, you know, with postcards and photographs and things all out. He'd come there. They'd done some reminiscing and talking and chatting. He got on his train and left town um, before the murders ever happened. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned it's interesting. You said he might, he might not have known for probably a year. He may may have never known, you know, you know, he, he apparently hadn't seen them in a while because he didn't know. He he knew they lived somewhere in town, was around asking for them. Uh, finally found their house. They, you know, spent a couple of hours in the evening. He was gone. And for all we know, he never did find out because if you say he got on a train and ended up in California, well, newspapers wouldn't have covered it at the time, not this local story. And so he may have never found out or maybe found out years later. Who knows? Yeah, that's crazy just to think of how things have changed. Well, things, things were, you know, relationships were a lot looser. I guess back mm-hmm. then, you know, um, you could have a really good friend that you may not see for years and years because how are you going to stay in touch? Maybe you write letters, but you know, people were, you know, a lot more transient back then. They moved to other places, you know, they picked up and moved these, these two, especially, you know, I mean, his dad didn't even know that Anna was living with him, you know, when he came there to, to claim the body of his son, he didn't even know that she was there. Yeah. Uh, so that was a surprise. You know, but people would just pack up and move around and, you know, you'd move for work, you'd move for a job, you know, things were just a lot different. And it's not like you could text somebody or, you know, send them a message on Facebook or, you know what I mean? It just, there wasn't a way for people to easily keep in touch. Not even everyone had telephones back then. So it was just a different time, different society was different back then. You know, so there's a good chance this guy never found out exactly what happened to his friends. Yeah, well, that that's upsetting, and um, you know, some in some ways, I think that's it's a better time because I, you know, the 24 hour news cycle you talked about. Like, yeah. I don't think we're supposed to know every terrible yeah, thing that's happening it makes around you, the world. Yeah, it certainly has increased everyone's you know, the way that we see the world, everybody's anxiety levels, Mm -hmm. you know, I blame all of that on 24 hour news cycles, really. And now, I mean, we have all this technology in our pocket. We're just hit with so much Mm -hmm. stuff from the outside world. And you you feel like that, you know, people will talk about, oh, you know, I decided to take the weekend off from social media. Well, that must be easy for you because you work at a nine to five job. But let's say you're me and you've got to manage six Facebook pages because you're self-employed, there is no taking time right. off and you become a slave to that stuff, you know, and it's awful. It yep. is awful, but sometimes you just can't help it. Yep. You know, I mean, yeah, a lot of my job is to get on yeah, Facebook, that is your job. get on Twitter. And my, my job is figure out how to distract people while they're on these apps while not getting distracted myself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough, you know, and if I do my job well, then people are just diving more into this, you yeah, know, this exactly. and just seeing the light shine on their face with the phone. And it's a weird world. Yeah. You know? I, I saw some news report the other day. We were talking about how kids and are getting younger and younger people are giving them cell phones, mm-hmm. you know, and now it's like, you know, they're making a pledge to wait until eighth grade. And I thought, man, can you imagine if I had a cell phone in eighth grade? Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, we didn't have anything like that. You know, I mean, we were still using the, those little slates with the chalk on them. For, right, right. You know, so I'm just kidding. But um, not really that much. Um, but, I, you know, it's just we've become a slave to that kind of thing. And it was a different time. It was just a different time mm-hmm. um, when, you know, the only thing we had to occupy us and to capture our attention were the newspapers, which yeah. is how things got so out of control in this particular murder case, too. Right. Same way with Velisca, but especially in this particular case. 
Right. And so the Hudsons, they, they weren't done with house guests for that night. Oh, no. But I'll come back to that. So th- this night there was um, an attempted uh, second home invasion, yeah. I guess. So the early morning hours of June 6th, uh, sound of shattering glass echoes through the home of Mrs. Joseph Longmire, a widow who lived near the Hudson Cottage. She wakes up because uh, the glass hears, catches a man essentially running out of her house, and she immediately goes to check on her eight-year-old daughter. And the little girl says there was a man, and she'd seen him in the hallway, got up to look. And the next time that this little girl saw the man, he'd been leaning over her mother's bed. And they eventually found a kimono-style dressing gown in this house. It was draped over a chair, and it had belonged to Anna Hudson, whom this man had just murdered. And had been taken from the scene of her murder, and the broken glass was from an oil lamp. So he was going for the the double whammy again. Like Colorado Springs. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, same deal. And so did she, did she, I know that we talk about some stuff in a little bit about the next morning, but like, did she call the cops? What do you do at this time? Well, How's that work? I guess she didn't immediately. I think she probably just locked up the house because I don't imagine the doors were locked. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe they were because when he went to the Hudson's house, he climbed in through a window, Yeah, you know, as he'd done in other places. Uh, but maybe she just locked things up. I doubt she slept much that night. But yeah. who you, the thing was, is who are you going to call at that time of night? Try not to say Ghostbusters. Yeah, I know. But I mean, seriously, though, I mean, you know, the, the next day that the guy rides by the deputy marshal for the west side of town. Right. Which to me to says, by. yeah, which to me says like he's one step up from the neighborhood watch, mm-hmm. you know. And so, I mean, there's no one for her to contact at that time of night. So she had to wait it out till morning. And I, like I said, I doubt she slept. But, you know, I don't think she probably had any idea that someone had been murdered, you know, a couple of houses over. And, you know, I've always found one thing I've always found so strange about this case is, you know, you, all the similarities, you, you know, railroad town, you know, suck into the window, you know, beat them to death, covered them up with the blankets, cover their faces, um, use the oil lamp, left the chimney sitting in the, and the lamp sitting at the end of the bed. And in the, at Mrs. Longmire's house, he actually dropped it and mm-hmm. it broke when I guess he spotted the little girl. But um, the thing with the kimono gown, can't figure that one out. Yeah. Um, It makes me wonder if maybe there had been things taken from some of the earlier scenes. That we just didn't know about. That no one knew about because they were such an innocuous trophy. Mm -hmm. You know, something, an article of clothing. Who, Who would know? Yeah. You know, if a whole family is wiped out. And you came in and even if you're, you know, somebody's the victim's sister or something, and you come in and there's clothes, clothing missing. How would you know you yep. wouldn't? So that makes me wonder if maybe he had been taking trophies all along. Yeah. Uh, but this time he had that gown with him and it got left behind. Yeah. I mean, I can yeah. honestly say I have no idea how many kimonos my sister owns. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. No yeah. Who knows? So. No clue. So it's so it's the next morning of June 6th, and there's two neighbors that are kind of curious about why the house has been so silent, yeah. uh, why the Hudson Familiar House has been so story. silent. Yep. Yeah. And so one of the neighbors finally, Mrs. Pryor, hears a commotion, and she decides, I'm just going to push open the front door and figure out what's going on. And she came out and fainted. Yeah. And yeah. this made me kind of wonder, I wonder how I would react if I found a dead body. Yeah, well, I don't know, especially two bodies that were beaten as badly as those yeah. two bodies were. I think To I'd the probably, point that they were like... You know, Roland was unrecognizable. Yeah. And one of 
Anna's eyes were gone because yes. it had been beaten out of her face. You know that is insane. I think I'd, I'd probably pass out too, or I'd throw up. Maybe I don't know. Well, like, I mean, you know, look at it this way: when the deputy marshal went in, he didn't do much better than Mrs. Pryor did. So yes, so he's her. the one who came out. And when I picture him, I, I his arms were raised above his head. I picture <laughs> him running out on the porch, waving both arms ah! like this, yes. you know, and oh my God, they've been murdered, you know. So he, you know did his Scooby-Doo episode reaction to the murders to right. himself. So. That was a very good impression from, what the, <laughs> from, from Herman Hintz. Yes. And uh, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, finally, one of the other women went inside out of the front door. Pete peered into the gloom. She could see in the bedroom, saw two bloody forms in the bed. There's blood splattered on the walls and soaked the blanket of the bed. Uh, like you mentioned, Roland and Anna's skulls have been crushed and their faces were barely recognizable. Uh, oil lamp was discovered near the foot of the bed. There was nothing stolen from the house aside from the dressing gown. And then after the killer covered the bodies, though, he continued to strike them, hammering so hard that the blanket had been ripped in several places. And that that's always a weird thing to me. And I, I'm just not sure, is he trying to just keep the blood splatter to a minimum on himself? I don't know. It makes me wonder if, you know, normally with these murders, he has always murdered them and then covered them up. Well, mm -hmm. you know what? It makes me wonder if maybe one of them, after he covered them up, one of them moved. Ooh. Maybe was still alive, yeah. barely, but still alive. And so then he kept hitting them after he'd covered them because that's not normal. I mean, yeah. that's not that's not how the other murders have gone. Mm -hmm. um, he usually has killed them already before he covers them up. And I'm thinking that maybe one of them stirred. Yeah. You know, that's just a it's just an idea, but Ugh. it's a thought. Yeah. Well, it's an upsetting one. But <laughs> so the investigation, the uh, police quickly learned that the Hudsons did not have a very happy marriage. They had three separations in the first two years and that Anna was probably having an, an affair um, with a man named Roy Hooky Adams. Yeah. A, yeah. a friend of Anna's from Akron. Um, Roland was a hard worker, but he also had a very violent temper and sometimes he would just disappear. Well, I don't know if you've seen their pictures, but no, they not. look like they're, uh, especially him. He looks like he's like 14 years old. Really? I don't know how old exactly he was, but he was very young. He was in his early, they were both in their early twenties huh. and he looks super young in his picture. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Um, and so basically Roland, what we understand found a letter, um, to his wife, I believe in it. It's, I feel like it's kind of akin to going through your wife's like text messages. Yeah, exactly. Facebook. Yeah, it's it's the yeah the, that the nineteen twelve version of going through your wife's cell phone. Yes, and we know some of this stuff from uh, G W Cole. Side note, I have to ask about this. Was Anna's father named Jacob Axe? Yeah, that is yeah poetic, ironic, yeah. terrible. Spelled yeah with two X's, but yeah, his so name many. Was yeah, there's so many spellings. I don't it's know. Really weird. Um, so eventually they found a three and a half page letter addressed to Anna on a flight of stairs. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Which is a I, weird. Yeah. I, I don't, I really don't think that was real. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of leave it for people to decide for themselves, mm -hmm. but I think that was a newspaper reporter trying to keep the story going. Okay. That's what I think because it was, I mean, who has an important letter that they have managed to snag somehow out of the mail yeah. and then leaves it sitting on a flight of stairs between two buildings? Right. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, I think the I think the whole thing was a put up job. I think the mm -hmm. guys that found it, I think the whole thing was a put up. But, okay, well that's fair because I yeah. took I took a bunch of notes and I was yeah, like, it doesn't really seem to be important to the investigation. No, and none of it was. It just kind of seemed to derail. Nothing even more. about yeah, nothing about the affairs. I mean, they were important to the investigation at the time because the police were, of course, looking for someone local 
who might have committed this murder, something that they could wrap their heads around. Because again, nobody in this town, just like all the other ones, couldn't wrap their head around the idea that there was a traveling serial killer because mm-hmm. no one knew what a serial killer was. So the idea that, you know, it was somebody that she'd been having an affair with locally just made it sound better because, you know, once it hit the papers and everybody started coming together with stories saying, oh, I saw her two miles outside of town. Right. I'm pretty sure it was her. You know, that's that's standard. Anytime the police open up the phone lines for help mm-hmm. from the public, that's the kind of garbage that they get. Yep. I mean, and they'll all tell you that, that, you know, you put out a reward, everything just gets even worse. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's got a story or, you know, anybody that they're mad at. And that's what was going on in Villisca. You know, a few months later, anybody they had a grudge against, then they made up a story about how, oh, well, you know, I saw him hanging around the Moore house the other night, right. you know, so you can't take any of that for, for gospel. You know, yep. so this was just this was a mess from beginning to end. Um, these guys were, uh, you know, way out of their depth trying to investigate this. And, you know, once it, it once once it got out that that Anna had maybe had an affair or maybe that they would been fighting, you know, it all just became a me- an even bigger mess. Yeah. And so eventually keep searching. But the murder weapons never found, which is kind of odd. But. I had a thought that you eventually backed up and, you know, the next couple of paragraphs, but I was like, he probably just took it to the Longmire house and then got spooked, ran away with it, yeah. threw it somewhere. Just tossed it somewhere in that railroad yards because they were huge. You know, the railroad right. yards were all over the place. Um, you know, they're still there. They're not as big as they used to be, but this house is actually still standing. Oh yeah. The Pala house is still standing. You've been there? So I've seen it. Yeah. I went by there. I saw it and we can't go in. People live there. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's still there. Interesting. So this is the same thing that he did in Ellsworth when he realized Marshall Merritt was awake. Right. So, right. so that, I mean, I think that's totally plausible. Um, interestingly, a comment appeared in the Western Spirit, the Miami County newspaper, which was attributed to Sheriff Chandler. And he was quoted as saying that he was satisfied that the axe man who had slain whole families in different parts of the country over the past year was also guilty of the Hudson murders. He was the only one that so had the idea that yep. there was a connection. And by then it was way too late, of yeah. course, but yeah, he was the only one who noted the connection. There's always, there's always that one good cop you know, that puts <laughs> yeah, the story yeah, together. Right, right. So regardless, the killer hopped on a train and was on his way to Villisca, as yep. we think. Yep. And that's where we'll pick up in two weeks. Yep. It's now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This message is from Steven and he writes... I'm on episode five of the St. Louis Exorcism. I stumbled onto your podcast and been binge listening four to five hours daily. I am a machine operator and I listen all day at work. Oh, well, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, And he said, yes, I listen all the way through to the end. And Cody, (laughs) yes, I do hear your outro each episode. Now you know at least one person is listening all the way through. I enjoy your podcast. One guy. A lot. And I'm a bit of a history geek. Thanks for your podcast. And he said, Stephen from... Halea, Halea, Florida. He said it's adjacent oh, to Miami. Cool. So, Stephen, thank you for listening. Um, if you live in Florida, go hang out with Stephen and also take a page <laughs> from his book. Just binge our podcast at work. Like, ignore your responsibilities. Yeah, no one cares. Four to five hours a day at minimum. Anyway, thank you very much. Whatever your job is, it isn't this much fun. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, just (laughs) just listen to the podcast. We also have a couple of uh, Patreon shout outs. So, we have some some new patrons. I want to give a quick thank you to Amy and Steven. So, if you'd like to hear your name called out on the podcast, or if you want, uh, you know, weekly episodes, t shirts, discounts, access to our private Facebook community, and more. You can head on over to patreon.com slash American Hauntings, where you can sign up to support the podcast for as little as $1 a month. Just $1 a month. 
Um, and also check out our, we have shirts, tank tops, hoodies, and everything, AmericanHiveClothing.com. Okay, well, I guess we should probably wrap this up and uh, we will see you guys in a couple of weeks. Don't forget, uh, share this with your friends, pass it on, leave us reviews on iTunes, get onto the website and get your reservations made for the Haunted America Conference. It's ghostconference.net so that you can come hang out with us in June at the event because it is going to be a lot of fun again this year. So we hope to see you there. All right, well, go ahead. Waste everybody's time. All right. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode. Take a brand new look at history and hauntings. I tried to stop. I tried to you not say anything, but this is such a waste of time. No one is listening. I'm telling. Okay, I'm sorry. Hi, Stephen, because you're the only guy listening to this right now. By searching, so I'll just say hi to Stephen. Or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, haunted happenings, and his comedy album that's coming out, apparently. Remember, if you love this show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. How much longer is this? We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your hosts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Until next time. At stamps.com. Is that, are we not advertising I would that? be oh. so down for stamps.com. Oh, I would not. I don't know anybody that sends letters anymore. No, I don't either. Anyway, until next time, goodbye, so long, see you later. Woo. Every half-assed podcast around here.